This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. Russian tanks are back in Ukraine, says NATO Supreme Allied Commander Europe. We agree that there are multiple columns that we have seen. We agree with the OSCE reports. British troops complete pullout in Afghanistan, so who's left to make the peace work? Ebola, how long can the army stay in Sierra Leone? And poppies, it's big business where it all started. Russian troops, tanks, artillery and air defence systems have entered East Ukraine, according to NATO's most senior commander in Europe. General Philip Breedlove says the troops and military equipment have been seen crossing the border in the last few days. We do not have a good picture at this time of how many. Uh, we agree that there are multiple columns that we've seen. We agree with the OSCE reports. Um, and as to their intent, uh, I'm not sure. The United States has accused Russia of systematically working to undermine the agreement signed in September aimed at restoring peace in Ukraine. America's UN ambassador Samantha Power told an emergency meeting of the Security Council that Moscow continues to deceive the international community. The pattern is clear. Where Russia has made commitments, it has failed to meet them. Russia has negotiated a peace plan and then systematically undermined it at every step. It talks of peace, but it keeps fueling war. But Russia's deputy UN ambassador, Alexander Pankin, has dismissed the allegation. These are empty statements and the usual propagandistic falsifications, in particular in the current conditions. The Russian-Ukrainian border is subject of particular careful attention and monitoring. Well, I'm joined as usual by our defence analyst Christopher Lee and the BBC's diplomatic editor Bridget Kendall. Hello to both of you. Uh, Bridget, first to you. What is President Putin up to then? Well, uh, that peace plan which was signed in September always looked very shaky and there wasn't any real agreement on the two sides, uh, the Ukrainian government on the one side and the rebels backed by Russia on the other about what would happen in eastern Ukraine. And there's been low-level fighting ever since. And it feels as though when the uh, rebels in eastern Ukraine carried out their own elections uh, just a couple of weeks ago, which were rejected by Kiev as illegal, that this ratcheted up the tension even more. One possibility is that Russia is strengthening support for the rebels because it's worried that Kiev rejecting their election might mean we're on the edge of new hostilities. But actually, fighting's continuing anyway. What people fear in Kiev is that this is more of an offensive and that the Russians are thinking that uh, the ceasefire is breaking down and that what would be to their strategic advantage would be to push the borders of these self-styled republics further along and take the port city of Mariupol, which would provide a land bridge between Russia and the Crimea. There's been no suggestion of that from Russia, but that is certainly what Kiev fears. Are we on the brink of war between Russia and Ukraine? Well, I think war is already happening. It never really stopped. There's been a tough fight over the 
airport in Donetsk, for example, the Ukrainians definitely didn't want the rebels to have the ability to fly things in and out of that airport. The rebels wanted to have it. If they want to be a self-styled republic, they wanted to have a proper airport. The one in Luhansk had been heavily bombed by the Ukrainians and would have been difficult to repair. Now there's been more fighting, which has been talked about. Interestingly, the OSCE, the watchdog of monitors who've been monitoring the border and the area and issuing daily reports, have just issued a report saying they'd noted Russian Russian trucks with the sign on them of Cargo 200, which is often used when they're carrying dead bodies, going into eastern Ukraine and then coming out again as though possibly carrying dead Russian servicemen. There have been reports to that effect from uh, one of the uh, Ukrainian military movements that there had been a firefight. They thought they'd killed a lot of Russians. So possibly that is happening, still continuing at a low level already. What's not happening is all-out war declared between Kiev and Moscow. And I I think that that's unlikely. Uh, The stakes are incredibly high for Mr. Putin as well as the Kiev government. Neither side wants to have an all-out war, but the simmering low-level war, it's continuing. Christopher. um, Bridget was talking about the the ceasefire, um, which was uh, declared in, I think it's called the Minsk uh, ceasefire. And quite clearly, if you look at what's happened with the engagements on both sides, it was a ceasefire in places that it doesn't really matter about. And, and so you really had a sort of continuous warfare at this Doesn't level. Doesn't really matter about in what in, sense. In, in as much that, they, in, in fact, you can have peace in that area because nobody's going to be fighting in that area. That sort of that sort of consequence. And so you have, for example, a, a statistic that since that agreement of a ceasefire in Minsk, in, was I think it was mid-September, you've had literally thousands of people killed. And the idea, for example, cargo two hundred, which is um, which is which is quite possibly a recovery a recovery vehicles, the stories that we've been reading and uh, listening to from uh, from Russia over the past few months, it's of more body bags appearing, more people getting sort of uh, aggrieved at the whole thing. But is this? Reinforcement, or is this, is or is it ludic- mm. ludicrous? I mean, for example, uh, uh, General uh, Konoshenko, who speaks for the uh, speaks for, for for the Kremlin, he's saying NATO was saying these sort of things, and this is this simply is is not true that there are reinforcements, but there are photographs, uh, there are satellite pictures, there are uh, intelligence, electronic intelligence communications uh, reports, and basically it said these things are going through, and that's the end of the story because we don't really know what. We know what the capabilities are that are going through. What we don't know is the intentions of what uh, right up to Putin intends to do with them. Bridget Kendall, can Russia financially afford to go to war and how long for? Well, it certainly can afford to do it more than Ukraine can, which is teetering on the edge of bankruptcy, just propped up by the IMF and the European Union. Russia is feeling the pinch from sanctions. Uh, We know, and, and falling oil prices, we've seen the plummeting way that the ruble has plunged in value against the euro and the dollar in recent weeks. But it does have reserves, pretty healthy if you compare them to the gaping hole that there is, for example, in Britain's finances. And uh, it does have a lot of military might. So if you match the two, Ukraine versus Russia, then it's Russia that can afford to keep this going more than Ukraine can. But of course, for the Ukrainians, this is their territory. This is their it's existential. This is their existence. And so the determination on those who are fighting on behalf of the Kiev government is very strong. What a lot of people think is that 
Moscow's intention might be if there is no peace deal on the terms that it wants, and what it wants is an autonomous region in the east which has the right to run itself and possibly control its own borders and its trade and even have a say over what foreign policy there should be in Kiev, i.e. no NATO membership, mm. that if they won't agree to that, then Moscow's just going to keep on rattling the cage, making this border unmanageable, making this little area ungovernable, keeping up low-level fighting to keep the government in Kiev weak. It's, it's, it's also true that, that what's been going on in the past 24 hours is a, is a NATO defence bill. Some of the NATO defence ministers have been meeting in Norway. And Norway has, uh, since the Second World War, uh, a fear of uh, Russia or, the, or before that Soviet Union coming over the North Cape, etc. But it's interesting, the Norwegians have been saying today, we are preparing for the worst. And um, perhaps other countries don't feel that, but they are, as far as they're concerned, right on the border of what could be a, a, a confrontation. Not a war in the grand style we sometimes talk about, but a different form of war. Christopher, stay with us. For now, Bridget Kendall, thank you for your time. Sit rep with Still to come, we talk to a man for whom remembrance is an all-year-round business and who was the last to leave Camp Bastion. BFBS Sit Rep. Train, advise and assist. Those are the watchwords from the brigadier commanding the British troops who remain in Afghanistan. The British combat role has come to an end, but the UK's NATO job in Kabul continues. BFBS reporter Fiona Weir asked the commander of the British forces, Brigadier James Stopford, about the role. We've still got a, a, an important mission to do. Combat operations have ended down in, in the south, but we are here ready to support the Resolute Support Mission, which is NATO's continued mission, into Afghanistan uh, for 2015 and beyond. What is the makeup of the UK force here now in Afghanistan? Uh, the makeup up here in Kabul, we still have a few elements which are extracting from down in Kandahar, but the makeup here in Kabul is a small force based on three main contingent parts. The first part is the Afghan National Army Officer Academy, our flagship project. Uh, Santos in the sand, uh, training officer cadets uh, to command in the Afghan National Security Forces. We're providing uh, advisors to the various ministries here, and we have a small force which protects those other two parts to do their job. Has the force changed in any way? Has the, the, the makeup of it changed in any way since the closure of, closure of Bastion? The force here hasn't changed. The commitment to resolute support was decided some time ago by the government. Uh, the Prime Minister was out here recently, reaffirmed his commitment to uh, President Ghani in Afghanistan, and we are poised to deliver that. And the plan is on track. So what is the wider remit, if you like, of UK troops here as part of Resolute Support? Uh, our remit is entirely in line with the NATO commitment. Resolute Support is all about train, advise and assist the Afghan national security forces. They have done a superb job. We've built, the NATO have built the force from nothing. Uh, it is a force which took over the security lead for Afghanistan in the summer of 2013. They have done a phenomenal job over the last 15 to 18 months. They've secured two rounds of elections. They've secured two fighting seasons. They have stopped the insurgent achieving its aim. And that uh, force is now delivered. But we need now to take that to the next step. Combat operations have stopped. Our bit in mentoring those Afghan national security forces has stopped. We are now advising and assisting the ministries and the core headquarters to mature the way those institutions deliver 
capability for the Afghans. Will the Afghans be able to maintain the legacy we've left you? What structures are we actually putting in place so they'll be able to manage, if you like, when we're no longer here? The answer is yes, the Afghans will. I've, I was first here in 2004. Uh, Kabul is a completely different city. It has developed in extraordinary ways and it's, in hugely, it's hugely satisfying to see that. Uh, the Afghans need help. They need a little bit of help to finalize the institutions that we've put in place. But those are Afghan institutions. They are Afghan-led. And we are here adding that polish. So the advisory role is important. Delivering leadership training in the model of Santos is important. The first cadets passed out uh, on the 24th of September. Uh, we have the ability to train over 1,000 cadets a year there and 90 female cadets. So I have no doubt that what we have uh, assisted them to build uh, will leave them in a position where they are able to stand on their feet. So what is the future for UK troops here in Kabul? Uh, the UK is committed to the NATO's resolute support. Uh, the Prime Minister, on his recent visit here, uh, assured President Ghani of his continued support, and so are other nations under the Tokyo Accord. So uh, that's reassuring. It's reassuring for the Afghans as well, so that they know that this is uh, this, this, the, um, the the international community remains behind them. Brigadier James Stopford talking to Fiona Weir. Another milestone in Britain's exit from Afghanistan has passed this week. The tornadoes of 31 Squadron have left Kandahar after five years of close air support and tactical reconnaissance missions. Christopher, so this really is the end of Britain's third war in Afghanistan. It is, isn't it? It all started in the 1830s. That was the first one. But what I find fascinating is that we think army, don't we, about the withdrawal because everything is visually army uh, and then you, 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 you are talking about the tornadoes going we, we seem to forget the Royal Air Force the Royal Navy, Royal Marines they played just as big a part really, in fact it's fascinating, the Navy has flown more sorties into Afghanistan than the Royal Air Force have uh, and that, it, it is quite, quite astonishing a lot of the time for example the hospitals weren't run by the army and so it really has been a joint service operation. Mm. 5,147 people have now died from Ebola in West Africa, according to the World Health Organization. The WHO also says there have been steep increases in cases in Sierra Leone. 421 new infections were reported last week. Armed Forces Minister Marc Francois has been to see how British troops are trying to contain the virus there. Sitrep's Gisela Waldron asked him about what he'd seen. My impression really is one of immense pride, actually, uh, by seeing what our armed forces personnel have been uh, achieving out here. Uh, I visited the National Ebola uh, Response Centre this morning, um, where our armed forces personnel are working side by side with the Sierra Leoneans to coordinate the response across the country to the fight the disease. Then I went on to the Ebola Training Academy, where we've trained over 1,700 Sierra Leonean healthcare workers. Um, and we've got a, about another 800 going through that training program this week to help them to fight the disease in their own country. And I've just come back from visiting Tutu Field Hospital at Kerrytown, where they're working alongside Save the Children. Save the Children have got a facility of up to 80 beds for civilians. And Tutu Field Hospital are running a specialised facility uh, to provide high-end medical care were any international healthcare workers to become infected. 
It's been reported there's been a sharp rise in cases, which is suggesting the situation is getting worse. Uh, could the number of British troops helping out there rise? The information I have is that while the number of reported cases has increased, and that's partly because people are now more confident to come forward and report when they have the disease, the rate of increase is beginning to slow slightly. So, you know, we're by no means out of the woods yet. I mean, there's still a great deal to do, but we clearly our efforts are beginning to have some effect. We've got over 800 military personnel deployed here now, so that's a, a very considerable commitment. And I just mentioned the Kerrytown facility that's just recently opened. We've got five more Ebola treatment centres, which are like five mini, mini hospitals, if you like, each of around 100 additional beds. And our Royal Engineers have been overseeing their construction and they should uh, now open next month. So that will materially increase the bed capacity uh, in Sierra Leone as well. So we're already making a pretty significant contribution, and we've already got 800 people deployed in Vienna. You say it's a considerable commitment, but how will you sustain it, and how long for? Well, in financial terms, uh, the government's committed not far short of a quarter of a billion pounds. So... In money terms, it's a very considerable commitment. In human terms, it's a really considerable commitment of 800 personnel. And uh, we will rotate people through theatre as we need to in order to maintain the force structure that we, that we have to have. So people's tour lengths here will vary depending on the role that they've got. But for instance, the medics at Kerrytown will do about a two-month tour because working in that hot tent is very intense work. And we've already got uh, another cohort training at Strensel to come and relieve them um, when they finish their tour of duty. So we're already thinking ahead about how we can replace people when they return from theatre. About when they return from theatre, will British troops have to go through quarantine like their US counterparts? Uh, at the moment, that is not the plan. Um, we're following extremely closely um, the advice we're getting from our medical experts at Public Health England. So they've provided us with guidelines that say when troops come back from theatre, they must go through medical screening. If they've been directly involved with Ebola patients, there are some higher compliance levels that they have to, to keep to, for instance, taking their temperature twice a day and reporting that in. But we are not talking about quarantining British troops because that's not what our medical experts are recommending us to do. The Armed Forces Minister, Mark Francois, talking to Gisela Walter and Christopher. More medics being trained to go out after those already there finish that three-month stint. Is it sustainable? It's only sustainable if you know how long this operation is going to go, go on for. If you've got 800, you've got to have a, a, a core of perhaps up to 2,400. 2,500 people that you can call on, that you can, you can actually rot, rotate through. And that's going to be the problem once you get into a long term. It's interesting, for example, at Guinea and Liberia, uh, reporting that infections are falling. That means only discoverable infections are falling. And in Sierra Leone, they're going up, which means that you're actually discovering more people with Ebola. Mm. And so that sort of could actually have this deployment going on for much longer that, that, than that, elsewhere. That thing he talked about, the Ebola Training Academy. Strange name for a place, isn't it? And what on earth do they do there? Well, I mean, I'm not sure they got the names right yet. But in fact, what, what has happened, and it's very, very clear from all the reports that I've read, is the enormous regard that the Sierra Leoneans have 
for the British to be there. Mm. And that's not just sort of jingoism. It is a fact that goes back to when David Richards sort of launched his, his government rescue operation more than a decade ago. Other noteworthy things this week. Uh, President Obama has been talking about Syria and perhaps a change in military strategy. Is it... it the difficulty and strange of military strategy is what you do with sort of th- uh, uh, ceasefires. If you talk to people in the State Department, they're saying we've got to start thinking of local ceasefires, and in particularly in Aleppo, etc. Then you can uh, you can change your strategy. But the problem is the Sunni Shia conflict has spread right across the Middle East. Because originally the idea was that you went into Iraq, you defeated Islamic State in Iraq, then Syria, and you supported the so-called moderate rebels in okay, Syria. Okay, but what you did, you pushed. Uh, IS, let's call them that, back into Syria, uh, and therefore you could you could get it in a mm. border established again. That's not working, and and that's what he's really and having he suge- to rethink. He's suggesting that President Assad being there could be a, an obstacle to getting rid of IS. Now. That's right, because you've got to remember that he is approaching eighteen months into an election, and he's actually having to say things that Republicans can't turn around and say that Obama's going soft in this whole thing mm. because the uh, uh, Republicans are far more likely to put a couple of brigades in to try and sort it out because they want still to get rid of Assad. But there's the unspoken word is that what's happening is that Assad actually can start worrying the IS when they get back in. And we have to think, of course, in Iraq, there's some evidence, some evidence that well-trained uh, people, not just Peshmerga, but the, the militia, are starting to push IS further north. He's also set out security policy for the Far East. What, what's he said about that? Well, the Far East, he said, he said for example, the China, China Seas, it, 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 which includes, of course, Taiwan, is America's interest. That becomes very important. He's also got an agreement, which is a remarkable, an agreement with, with the Chinese that North Korea should not be allowed to go any further with its nuclear weapons program because, you know, in the crude tenses of, 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 the, of what's going on there, I mean, he's considered a basket case. North Korea is considered a basket case and could let off an explosion, a nuclear explosion, when it's got it. But there's another side of it. They have signed, the Chinese and the Americans have signed the most remarkable uh, climate change agreement, and they see it as part of national or international security over the next 20, 30 years. The important bit about that, the two possible frontrunners to be the next presidents in the United States, Christie in New Jersey and Hillary Clinton, of course, they both support what they were the first people to support this agreement which was signed yesterday. Republicans hate it, of course, mm-hmm. but they, they have come up to support it. But it shows... Climate change and nas- international security go hand in hand. Let's talk briefly about reserve num- reservist numbers because uh, the number of reserve forces have gone up by 1.8% since last year according to MOD figures that are out now. But more than 2,000 had left and this is against the Army's target of 30,000 by 2018. When is it time for the MOD to start talking about Plan B, Christopher? Ain't it just a muddly? absolute muddle. They came up, they said, look, we've, we're going to reduce the size of the army down to 80,000. And the opposition said, well, you can't do that because we need far more. And they said, don't worry, what we'll do, we'll increase the reservists and they'll make up the, make up the shortfall. Nobody, a few hundred, nobody is really joining. Times have changed, you know, employment, etc., back from Afghanistan. I believe that the, either the chief of the defence staff... Are you saying that nobody really wants to join because, of the, because employment's better? Employment's better and, and also um, because companies are saying, hang on, we don't really want you away for, uh, for, for six months and career prospects. But all sorts of reasons. They're simply not joining. And also, it's an absolute rubbish campaign that the MOD has launched to try and get people to join. I, I, you, you can't believe... I mean, Biggles might have joined, but nobody else. <laughs> no, this is no, your own personal opinion, of course. 
Yes. <laughs> but I, I've as never thought of another one. It was always thus, huh? <laughs> no, but let me, um, let's take this in a stage further, though. I think that, that the Chief of the Defence Staff is going to have to make some announcement, and he might make it by June at the latest. Very briefly, the Rosetta mission successfully landed a probe on a moving comet, hoped it will unlock the mystery of the origins of the solar system, but could it, how could it, uh, ultimately unlock new military capabilities in space? I tell you what, a long time ago when Ronald Reagan was around, he talked about Star Wars and how you bought weapons, but also anti-weapon stuff in space. And I remember talking to him about it, and he said, just As imagine... You do. Yeah, one does. Over this tea, one does, anyway. No, doubt. no, 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 no. It wasn't tea. What, in the White House? <laughs> Don't try it. Anyway, uh, no, but basically he was saying, he said, the people working on a project called Chair Heritage, scientists, one day they would see weapons on asteroids. This is BFBS. Sit rep. It's Thursday. The poppies have been unpinned. The meanies have stashed them away in the drawers for the next year. But what if remembrance is what you do all the time? Like at the British Grenadier bookshop in Ypres. The man who runs it is Steve Douglas and he's on the line now. Hello, Steve. Yours is the serious end of souvenir selling, isn't it? Uh, Well, I hadn't thought of it that way, but yeah, I suppose it is. This year, more publicity, more tourists than ever. How do you make out commercially with that? Well, it's certainly, uh, from a business point of view, the the uh, business is up in town, uh, definitely. Everybody's talking about it. Um, but uh, hopefully we do it in a respectful way. We don't want to exploit anything, so... Uh, um, just to provide what people are asking for. When you say you don't want to exploit anything, how do you keep things in the right kind of vein? Um, I think everything that we sell in our shop anyway, uh, I can't speak for all of the shops, but uh, in our shop I think we try to uh, uh, keep things respectful, uh, not selling... um, and not selling anything that is any, in any way connected to individual soldiers and lives, other than perhaps John McCrae and his poem, uh, which is so famous, and everybody wants a copy of that, or not everybody, but a lot of people. And uh, But more just sort of generic souvenirs, such as an Eper T-shirt or a, a Battlefield Relic T-shirt or an Eper baseball, Eper baseball hat. or Now there's a thought. Um, you know, just symbols, uh, 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 souvenirs of Ypres mm. in general and, and Flanders. Steve, I was down the way from you. Uh, yo-yos. Yeah. Poppy yo-yos. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how about poppy chocolates? Yeah. Uh, Etc. Now, I know there's none in the uh, the British Grenadier bookshop, but what about that lot? That is really, really tacky, isn't it? 100%. Well... I I have to agree with some of that. Uh, yo-yos with the Tietveld Memorial on it, I, I draw the line. I don't get the connection there. Mm. But, and as much as I don't like the idea of the poppy being overexploited, it is, in fact, a very popular flower anyway. Whether it's war-related or not, It's people love poppies. And the good thing about the poppy chocolates is that a portion of the sales does go to the British Legion. What is a poppy, poppy chocolate like exactly? Well, I've never tasted one, but it <laughs> just looks like a red poppy 
except it's chocolate. Indeed. You've got to keep them in the freezer, I tell you. I really? promise you. Did you, you buy one, Christopher? No, I was given one. I ah. no, no, I'm too mean. Okay. But you, you, you've got to keep them in the freezer, otherwise, no. no. All right, uh, we'll, we'll leave it there for now. Steve Douglas, thank you very much for your time today. Um, so, who was last to leave Camp Bastion? The Americans seem to think it should have been them, but these things don't always go as planned. Air traffic controller RAF Flight Sergeant Chris Longdon has told BFBS what really happened. One of the stories in the end was how it was quite orchestrated that the US Marines would be the last on the ground at Bastion as everybody climbed away. And we bumped into one of the Marine captains when we sort of landed at Kandahar afterwards. And he said it had all been orchestrated. The Marines were last on the ground. They climbed away uh, to look down as they climbed away from Bastion to see one of the British Apache helicopters just swooping and gently touch the runway for the last time and climbed away <laughs> and they just looked at it and they just laughed and sort of said, fair enough, we're going to give him that one. Oh, Christopher, you can hear the joy in his voice, can't you, there? It's wonderful, isn't it? But it, it, I tell you what, the air traffic, he's an air traffic controller, right? And, 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 and the giggle watchers like that, they're always the last because if somebody's taking off, You've got to have somebody to tell them it's clear. Mm, how do so, they get out then? Uh, so, oh, well, you'd get out in a truck. But the point is, can you imagine? It was Apache helicopter, and Prince Harry was there just three days ago. Now, I wouldn't believe, of course, that he was in it because I bet one of the nationals actually discovers who the co-pilot was. Christopher, one thought about what to look out for next week. You've got 10 seconds. Uh, one thought is the meeting in Brisbane of the G20. These are the economic people, the heads of government. The, 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 uh, Mr Cameron reckons he's going to give an absolute fanging to Mr Putin. <laughs> Love to be there when he does. Also, I'd like to see what sort of fanging you get. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Uh, if you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can follow us at BFBS SITREP. And remember, you can listen again on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. We're back at the same time next week. Thanks for listening. From me, Kate Chabot, bye-bye for now. And music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.